In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. A Franciscan University in Ohio posted a series of Facebook ads to promote their online theological programs. But one of their ads, in particular, got rejected. It had a depiction of the crucifixion, and so the message sent back to the university said that it was rejected because the depiction of the cross was, quote, shocking, sensational, and excessively violent. Much to probably Facebook's surprise, the University of Steubenville, the Franciscan University, replied back saying they wholeheartedly agreed with Facebook's assessment. They responded, and I quote, Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all of those things. It was the most sensational act in history. Man executed his God. It was shocking, yes. God deigned to take on flesh and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, citing Philippians 2, verse 8. And it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged within an inch of his life, nailed naked on a cross, and left to die. All the hate and sin of the world poured out its wrath upon his humanity. The cross stands central to this day, but it stands central to our faith as Christians. And in many ways, it's a conundrum. It's gruesome, it's violent, and it's ugly. And while we hold it, at the very core of who we are, we do well this night to pause and ask why it had to happen this way and what does it continue to speak into our lives today. To find the answer to those questions and to sit in the fullness of this passage, uh, might I suggest that we look at Isaiah 52 this evening for just a few moments together. Open there in your Bibles or follow along on your screens or in your uh, bulletin this evening. In verse 13 of chapter 52, we pick up with Isaiah foretelling of this very moment, hundreds of years before it ever came to pass. And as we read that opening line in verse 13, therein lies the key that begins to unlock the meaning of the cross. It states, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And then it continues to note what that wise action would entail. That word wisely, or as some other biblical translations will translate that verse, my servant shall prosper, indicates that this suffering servant, Jesus, would succeed at his task. Though repulsive, though rejected, whose image was so marred beyond human semblance, Jesus would succeed. Jesus, shockingly, at this moment, in a human mess of wounded flesh, hung in all its ugliness and failings of humanity that held him affixed to the cross, came for this very purpose. And he succeeds because, as verse 15 notes, it is in this action that the nations will be sprinkled as a result of this act. And the whole world shall see and know not only why he came, but what he came to fulfill. And the next chapter then reminds us, of course, that by his wounds we are healed, a familiar phrase that we know. 
You see, the conundrum of the cross, and perhaps the first key to unlocking what it means in its totality is this, namely that God crossed to us. God crossed to us. As one biblical scholar put it, and I quote, our culture and most of Western Christian thought focuses upon how we find our way to be with God. But the Bible is far more concerned with how the Creator God fulfills, intends, and promises to come and be with us. That may seem like a subtle shift, but it's a huge shift when we think about it. And it's a different way in looking at the world. The cross isn't merely a way in which we're bridged to get back to God, a lifeline, if you will, to get into heaven, to be saved from the troubles of this life. No, it's the way that God gets to us, and a little bit more about why that is the case in a moment. But it's the way He gets to us to establish, or in this case, to reestablish His kingdom. When we look back to the book of beginnings in Genesis, we discover the whole reason that God created us and everything that we behold was out of relationship. Relationship to dwell and delight in what he created, ourselves being included. And when a few verses in, all of that goes sideways when pride and will and ego get involved time and time again, God continues to find ways to draw near to his beloved creation and his beloved creatures. He does what? He chooses a people, Israel, covenanting with, them, covenanting with them to establish parameters by which they might engage him and he might engage the world he created, where he can meet with them. Even in the Exodus, we see that he tabernacles. He quite literally in that word dwells with his people, among his people. And then later, we see the temple is built by Solomon, and there he resides in and among his people. Even when they push him away time and time again, he, he approaches them through the mouths of the prophets, and then Jesus enters the scene, God incarnate, and here we are. God desires to be with us. God loves us. And the whole course of Scripture and Christendom points to that time and time again. He purposes to dwell with us, and so through the cross, God crosses to us and brings heaven to earth, something we are taught to pray by Jesus himself, that his will may be done on where earth as it is in heaven. And so on the cross, that begins to take place. But it still leaves us with the question of why. Why did it have to come in this way and in this manner? Why not just make it so? He's God after all. He can do whatever he deigns and delights, or so we think. But we'd forget a vital piece, and we discover the answer to that question, actually kind of towards the end of our reading, if you jump down with me to chapter 53, beginning in verse 6. It's there that we see the problem stated once more, the problem being the human heart. We are all wayward, each and every one of us. We change. The world around us changes. We get it wrong. We turn in our own wisdom and might. We turn from God time and time again, each to his own ways or her own ways, our own interests, building our own kingdoms and our own plans. In many ways, that one verse, verse 6, could sum up the whole of the human condition, the whole of the human heart. 
we're fickle. We're fallen. We follow our own desires and our own ambitions instead of what we were quite literally made for. And we turn from that purpose time and time again, and not one of us is uh, immune from it, myself included, and, and I take great company in, in Paul and those who write elsewhere, right? I want to do what I should do, but I see a war within myself that pushes me in other directions. Who can save me from this? And we know the rest of that verse. Despite our own efforts to establish our own kingdoms, our own hopes, our own dreams, our own ambitions, they collapse time and time again. That's the brutal reality of life, and we know it too well. And as a result, no matter what we do, no matter even if we try to get back to God, we know we cannot. And so as we jump into verse 10, we see that this is the Lord's will to crush Jesus, to crush him. Because he becomes the guilt offering, remember, think back to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the one who would be sprinkled for us, who can then bridge the gap so God may indeed get to us. The will of the Lord prospers, as we read, in his hand, in Jesus' hand. In that moment, in that verse, verse 11, we begin to see that it's out of the anguish of his soul, Jesus' soul, that this plan from so long ago foretold hundreds of years ago, but, but far beyond that in God's purposes come to pass so that you and I might be made righteous. Rightness comes through Jesus. The kingdom of God is established in Jesus. The covenant of God is restored in Jesus in a way that it had been broken time and time again, not just by those people, Israel, but representative of the whole of the human race. Why did it happen this way? Why the cross? Why the conundrum for us? As we think about it, in many ways, we are constantly changing. We change our minds as quickly as we change our clothes. We're fickle. We're, we're fallen. We're not faithful. And yet, in the midst of it, it's hard for us to even begin to think about one who never changes. And yet, that is God. And so, in our changing, God remains change less. That's who he is. It's his very property, as the old prayer book used to put it. It's his character. It's his nature, if you will. God doesn't change. He's steadfast. And thus, when our end of the covenant is broken, God can't just say, all right, I'll just snap my fingers and change it higher. So he can't just circumvent what he said to make it right or make it so. It must be set right because God is fully righteous, God is fully just, God is fully true, God is fully merciful. All those things that we talk about as attributes in other people, we've never seen in their purest form. And so we can't begin to think about what that means. And yet we're reminded here, the only way for things to be set right, the only way for things to be restored is for justice to be resolved. And that restitution, the truth, cannot be transgressed or turned back on, even as God would so delight and so yearns to be with his creation. He cannot because he has spoken, and it is so. So that restitution requires something, and that something is this guilt offering of Jesus. It atones for us, makes us one with God in a way that nothing else could. The blood of bull and goats, 
all of the sacrifices of old could never wash away the sins of even a people, let alone the whole of humanity. The cycle could not stop. And so what God descends or condescends to us, taking on our form so that he could draw near to us again. It's not merely out of God's wrath that Jesus is crucified, but that all might be set right in him. It's out of his mercy and justice outstretched on the cross, which are not mutually exclusive, but held in harmony, that we see the covenant is renewed. And so as we pray each time we come to the altar, with the exception of this night, that prayer of humble access, we're reminded that it is in God's property, in God's character to show mercy, even though we don't deserve it. Because that is who God is. He never changes. He never wavers. He remains true and just and loving and merciful. He never gives up and he never turns away. And thanks be to God because the conundrum of the cross therein remains our comfort. But the final twist, if you will, is found in the middle of this text that just truly anchors this in a new and profound way as it has down through the ages if we look up to chapter 53, beginning back in verse 1. We see here that Jesus foretold ever before he enters into his creation, it does not come as some kind of superhero that everyone would notice and commands respect just in his mere presence. But no, he has no outwardly form that would do that. No beauty, as verse 2 says. He's obscure, unimpressive by the world's standards. He's despised and rejected and acquainted with grief and sorrow. He not only enters into creation to save it, but he becomes as we are and enters the mess and yet becomes the resolution for it. In the brokenness of the world, he both understands and enters it. He comes into our hurts and our failings and our shattered dreams, entering when all justice seems lost, all beauty seems perverted, all love seems distorted, all mercy seems manipulative. He steps in when all is crashing and crumbling down, and it's there. It's there that we see Jesus. It is there in the brokenness that he's found in and among the ruins of our kingdoms. It is there that his kingdom comes and is established in and among the ruins of the world. Instead of meeting us where we would think, where um, the heights of justice would be seen, the heights of beauty might be revealed, the depths of freedom might be pointing. Instead, he doesn't meet us in the ideal. He meets us in the real, in the reality of life, where shattered dreams and lives and hopes reside, where truth is denied and justice is trampled on. Jesus meets us where we are, in our brokenness and among a broken and fallen world. It's there he's found, and it's there that we discover, indeed, the conundrum of the cross is that there is beauty, there's beauty in the brokenness. It's there his kingdom comes. And we notice that if we think about the events we just heard read and the event that began last night, it is incredible. The noble dreams of justice that would point humanity up towards God give way to justice perverted in the sham trial of Jesus. 
who had no reason to die. And it's there that we are pointed to the cross where Jesus resides among those failings. As the dreams of love and belonging that lift every heart up to God give way to the reality that in this moment, the disciples are nowhere to be found, their allegiances are stricken, and they are scattered, it's there that it points to Jesus on the cross. As truth that should lift us up to the presence of God um, is sought, we see Pilate asking God incarnate, Jesus Christ, what is truth? And then decides in his own way to reinforce these ideas of Isaiah. We have all gone to our own way. We've all gone to our own truths, each to his own way. And we essentially say, God, we've got this. And there we point to Jesus upon the cross. And the same is true no differently in our own lives. When we think about the brokenness of our world right now, and we look around at all the tensions and unequal systems and racial structures and all these things, it points to Jesus on the cross. When we look at beauty perverted that's seen on screens that drive a wedge between every human heart so that they don't see the depth of love or the distorted gender identities we're seeing playing out, it's there that we're pointed to Jesus upon the cross. As dreams are shattered by the manipulations of others in our lives, and we manipulate others' lives to make our own kingdoms, it's there that we're pointed to Jesus upon the cross. It's in the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world where we make ourselves fail time and time and time again that we're pointed to Jesus upon the cross. It's there time and time again, we're faced with the reality of this broken and fallen world where our best intentions will always fall short. Our best aspirations will always let us down. Our own dreams and kingdoms will never prevail. And it's there in the crumbling and in the shambles that there stands the cross among the brokenness where we find beauty because there we find Jesus. It's there that we find the resolution when all is crushing down, when our crowns fall at his feet, we see the king. And there we are reminded as we stand face to face with someone who is changeless, that no matter how much we change, no matter how much we twist and distort things, he never moves. He remains just. He loves purely. He shows mercy. His goodness and his hope is always there, no matter how far we move. And it's in that place that we're confronted with the conundrum of the cross, yes, as shocking, as sensational, as excessively violent as it is, because it's there that we see how much God loved you and how much God loved me. When all hope was lost, when there were no cards left to be played, God bridges over to us because that's who he is. And despite our changes and trials in this life, we can find beauty among the brokenness because God can always redeem and restore. And that's the message of Good Friday. And so what do we make of all this? What, what do we do with all of this? Well, it actually requires something of us. It's not something we can just look at, but it's something we must embrace. 
with our own heart and our own will, our own fiat, our own yes, in the same way that Jesus entered the world through the yes of one woman, Mary, so Jesus must enter into the world of our lives by our own fiat, our own yes, that we, like her and so many saints down the ages, may take our part, whereby first our initial yes transforms us, but then allows us to walk into the fullness of his kingdom. A yes that's not a ticket to be stamped to get into heaven, but rather a daily yes that comes with each breath and each moment where the conundrum of the cross confronts us daily so that his kingdom may come in and through us and it may be seen by our eyes. So as we reflect upon the cross tonight, it's my prayer that it will be felt and seen, revealed and heard and confirmed as you experience God's great love in the days ahead. And it moves us back to where God has always been, waiting for us, that we might draw near to Him as He once more is reaching out to us as we're reminded this year. So that, once more, our yes may lead us into His presence, where one day we will see Him beautifully with faces unveiled, as we stand in his presence forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.